would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, together we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10 tonight. Uh, hopefully uh, the slide will say 7 through 10. Um, and we're going to be continuing on in our series in Ephesians. As a young boy, I know that was a century ago, uh, one of my most vivid memories um, when I was very little was when my parents would drive us to Cornwall, uh, which is in the west of, uh, of Britain, uh, down by the coast, southwest of Britain. And um, we would drive past many, many farmers' fields on our way there, and it was in the summertime. And I was always struck, even as a young boy, by these giant fields of, of yellow flowers. And uh, I, I didn't know what they were at the time, but I vaguely recall thinking how nice it was that the farmers wanted to make everything look pretty, and so they planted flowers. What I didn't realize, of course, is that the farmers did not desire to make the countryside look pretty. That was just something that happened uh, because they were planting uh, rapeseed. Uh, which is made into an oil. I only realized that much, much later on. Um, but we will find, as we look at Ephesians, that God has his purpose also in converting us. It is he desires a harvest as well. He desires the fruits of our salvation to be manifested in the world and for him to receive the, uh, the glory thereby. He wants us to bear fruits in keeping with our calling. Something that we will, uh, we will see in Ephesians, but... Uh, before we turn to Ephesians, let's turn to the God who's given us this word and ask for his help in understanding it. Please join me. Oh, sovereign Lord, we are so thankful for your saving work in our lives. We thank you that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you intervened to save us. And you did that by changing our hearts forever. You put our spirit, your spirit within us and you have given us new desires and a new understanding. Lord, this word would have remained dead to us had it not been for your intervention. So we pray now, Lord, that you would illuminate us inwardly, help us to understand these things and to apply them in our own lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me. I, I can't hope to divide the word without your help, Lord. I will make terrible errors and mislead your people, and I don't want to do that. So, Lord, I pray that you would help me. I pray also, Lord, that you would give me unction and zeal as I pray uh, and, and preach, Lord. I, I don't wish for this to be something that merely bounces off people's uh, eardrums and then fades away forever. I, I want it, Lord, to go down into their hearts and produce that harvest that you desire. So, Lord, please help us today. Make us attentive and help us to grow. And I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, and starting with verse 7. <clears throat> that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I've been commenting uh, that as we've gone through uh, this section in Ephesians 2, right up to Ephesians 2.10, 
that there are three principal topics uh, that are being addressed. The first was the state of the Ephesians before their conversion. You remember how we read about how they were dead in sins and trespasses, how they were doing the will of the devil, and they were by nature children of wrath. They were destined for wrath. And then we talked about the change that had been brought, uh, wrought in them, how they've been brought to spiritual life, how their destiny, how their desires, how they themselves had been fundamentally changed in an act of spiritual rebirth, an act of spiritual rebirth that takes its power from the same source that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is through the Holy Spirit's working in them. And then now the third design is the change that has been brought about and what it was designed to do. Today we are going to be contemplating verses 7 through 10, and we are going to be therefore dwelling on part 3, the design for which that change in nature was brought about by God. Why did he do it? And why did he do it at, at such a cost? Why did God do all this? Why did he purpose to do all this? And these verses, I hope we will see, answer that question. Now, the first answer that we see being spelled out in verse 7 talks about uh, the age to come, okay? It looks forward to the age to come, uh, namely that from the point of their salvation onwards and especially in the age itself to come, we remember how Paul divides all of time, the Bible divides all of time into this present evil age, Okay, this is the age that we live in, the age that is still affected by the fall. And then there is the age to come. That is the age after Jesus Christ has returned and his victory is final. This is the age of the new heavens and the new earth. So it's looking forward, not just from the time in which the Ephesians were brought into the kingdom, but looking beyond that, far beyond that to the age when Jesus would come. And what Paul says is that in that time, the reason that you were saved is that in that time, you will be a testimony to God's grace, a testimony to the entire universe of his unmerited love. You are essentially going to be, we could put it this way, walking trophies of God's amazing grace, an illustration of the love of God that is unfathomable. We can't figure out why on earth he would love creatures like us, why we were found worthy to partake of so great a salvation, but you will display that fact that he did these things. Now, note also that he notes in verse 7 that the ground of our salvation is not to be found in us. It is not, and we've stressed this point that he looked at us and he said, wow, those people are so great, that one there and that one there. I love them so much because of their greatness, I will save them. We've spoken about how God's love is not reactionary, and he didn't save us because we were good and worthy. He saved us when we were enemies and rebels. He saved us, setting his love upon us because he had determined to love us from before the beginning of time. It was unmerited favor that he gave us and he saved us in Christ because he had determined that he would connect us to Christ. He would unite us to his son and his son would be the head of the church. We would be members of the body. And how will everyone in the future see that? Well, they will see the change that has been brought in us 
in the way that we live, the way we speak, the way we act. This is not a general, you are saved by grace in order to be saved. In the same way that we do not have babies in order merely to have babies and for them to, you know, simply come into existence. It is our hope that they will go through the stages of life, right? That they will be children and then they will become men and so on. And that they will succeed. They will do well. But we are given this great blessing by God. We learn in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in particular simply because of God's grace. Your salvation is by grace, for by grace you have been saved. Ah, God's unmerited favor. Now, what was it that united us to Jesus? And the answer is faith. Well, surely that's a work we did, right? We exercised faith that united us to Jesus Christ, and although it was very gracious of God to give us that opportunity, but still, you know, we deserve a pat on the back because we exercised that faith. No, what Paul says in these verses is that even the faith that we exercised was the gift of God. Why do we believe? Why were we made willing to believe? We were made willing to believe because God himself changed us. His power worked in our hearts. It changed our point of view. It cast off the shackles. It took away the the heart of stone and it puts in that heart of flesh. And the point that Paul is stressing again and again is it's not by works that you were saved. In all of his epistles, he, he essentially he dashes works off the table when it comes to salvation. He says, your works were no part of the ground upon which your salvation was bestowed. It wasn't because of something that you did that you were saved, that salvation is something that God does for us. He saves us. We might say, as some have said in the past, that The great good news is that God saves sinners, not that sinners cooperate with God to save themselves. Salvation is in no sense and in no degree of works. If it was, then we know this. If in even the smallest sense our salvation was by our own work, then it would not be a gift. It would be a reward. It would be something that God was indebted to bestow upon us, but he wasn't in any sense. So your works, brothers and sisters, what Paul is telling you, are entirely excluded from this equation. Your salvation is entirely a gift of God. Now, one of the things that we learn here is that only by faith in Jesus Christ, faith alone in Jesus Christ, faith plus nothing, can we lay hold of the free grace of God given to sinners. And that faith, as I've said, is not something we work up in ourselves. While it is true that as as far uh, as faith is concerned, we, we have to believe, all right? Faith involves three, I mean, usually theologians broke faith into three critical components. There was knowledge. We know about Christ, and what we know about Christ is true. We know, for instance, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the Son of God, that he died upon the cross, and that he rose again according to the Gospels, and so on. We need that true knowledge, and then we must assent to it. We must believe Not just, obviously, that Christ died, but that he rose again and that he did so for us. And then thirdly, that third critical element in faith is trust. Uh, It's it's more than just, uh, okay, I trust that this person is, is telling the truth because I think they're credible. 
but it's a loving trust. It's a putting ourselves into the hands of Christ. It, it encompasses not merely trust in a legal sense, but trust in a personal sense. We love Christ. We trust him. We know that he will do us good. And we believe that he always has our best interest in mind. And we therefore rest upon him. We believe what he tells us. And we believe that he is the one who is going to bring us into that final estate of salvation where we will be part of the church triumphant. We don't earn faith. We rather were given it, but we exercised it because our hearts were changed and God had given us this great gift and told us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and we did. Now, we didn't gain faith, obviously, because we suddenly became smarter. That's something that we need to understand. You don't talk somebody into the faith. You don't argue them into the faith. It's not a matter of cognition in that sense. We have a reasonable faith, and we can outline the faith and explain how it is reasonable, for instance, to believe that which men uh, deny very often, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that he grew up in uh, Nazareth, that he exercised that uh, miracle-filled ministry. Then he went to the cross. He died there and was raised again on the third day, that there are reasons to believe all of these things, but it is not mere reason that brings us to faith. Those of you who are truly born again will realize that you did not, you weren't argued into the faith, but that rather the Holy Spirit did that work accompanying the preaching of the gospel of changing your heart and implanting a new principle within you, implanting divine life within you, that it was God's work in changing your soul. Even the desire to be saved by grace through faith is not of ourselves. This too is a gift of God. Men ought to believe in Jesus. It is your duty. I have to stress this. It is absolutely your duty to believe on Jesus Christ, to receive him whom God has sent to be the propitiation for our sins. But you will not believe on Jesus. You will prefer anything to that believing in Jesus if the Holy Spirit does not convince you and constrain your will and change the direction that you flow in. Man has no heart to believe in Jesus for eternal life in and of himself. I, I, I remember, I hope, you know, I hope these memories will grow more and more vague as I get older, but I, I can remember how unreasonably offended by the Christian religion I was. I've said this before, other religions, Buddhism, Islam, even, you know, Woden worship and so on, and other sillinesses, they didn't offend me. Christianity offended me. It offended me at the very root. It made me angry. Why did it make me angry? Because my heart was inclined against it. I ask those of you who remember your own conversion to look back upon it and explain how it came about. You turned to Christ. Yes, you believed in his name. Uh, And in in fact, that was an act. You did something. But... What caused you to turn? What what sacred force was it that turned you from sin to righteousness? And I, I know that those of you who were where I was would never in a million years attribute that change to something that you worked in yourself, some enlightenment that you came to, but rather that it was God's mercy, God's grace, God's changing power that enlightened your understanding, that guided you to the foot of the cross. 
Salvation, in order to be true and complete, it has to be by free grace. And you will find this again and again, that when the saints, when it comes time for them to die, they never conclude their lives by hoping in good works. Those who have lived even the most holy and useful lives inevitably are depending upon Christ in those final moments. Many of you know that the the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. He taught initially at Princeton, then he taught at um, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary after Princeton was reorganized by the PCUSA in order to make it more liberal. He refused to be part of that organization. He also uh, refused to support a missionary system that was sending unbelievers overseas in order to teach people merely modern moralism, therapeutic deism, and to give them food. And so eventually he was kicked out of the PCUSA, formed the OPC. This is a man who labored mightily for the faith all his life. He died as a result of, uh, it was either South or North Dakota, I can't remember, but he went uh, in the midst of winter on a preaching uh, journey and he ended up in pneumonia and he sank very quickly and ended up dying. But he sent one final telegram back to his colleagues at Westminster Theological Seminary and these were the words that it contained. He said, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. What was he placing his hope in? He was placing his hope in Christ's completed work on his behalf, not his own. He could have said, well, I've done so many good works. I mean, hey, I was even on a preaching tour when I got sick and now I'm dying because I was serving Christ. But he didn't appeal to that. He knew himself to be a sinner saved by grace. And therefore he rested upon the Lord Jesus. The nearer men can come to heaven, one saint has said, and the more prepared they are for it, the more simply and completely do they trust in the merit of the Lord Jesus. And the more intensely do they abhor all trust in themselves. And that is why when the Christian stands before God, because he has trusted in the merits and the completed work of Jesus Christ, he is justified. And so we confess in our shorter catechism, the question number 33 asks, what is justification? And we answer, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and received by faith alone. And this idea of justification by faith alone is so important that John Calvin said of it, this is the main hinge on which religion turns, for unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety toward God. But somebody might ask, well, what what about works then? Do they serve any purpose at all? Do we, are we to be a people who are saved without good works? And the answer, of course, is no, not at all. Good works are a fundamental part of the Christian life. You were served, or rather, you were served and saved by Christ for a purpose in this life as well as in the ages to come. You were meant, and I hope you realize this, you were meant to be a visible sign of his grace to everyone around you. And I don't mean just in the future and in the age to come, but here and now as you are living your life. 
You see, in this passage of Ephesians, that you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And, and what is being referred to here by creation is not merely your initial creation, where you were brought into this world, your initial generation when your mother gave birth to you, when you were born. Uh, you will remember that even after that, even after you were born into this world, your status was children of wrath, as it said in Ephesians 2, 3, inheritors of the, of the curse, sons of disobedience. It's not our physical creation or birth that's being referred to by Paul here. What is it there for? It's referring to our recreation, our regeneration, our being born again, created in Christ Jesus. We're declared to be new creatures, and not because of our own power, but because of the Spirit of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you think of yourself that way? Brothers and sisters, those of you who know Christ, <coughs> do you think to yourself, I am not the person I once was. I am fundamentally different. My soul is different. My heart is different. My destiny is different. My desires are different. I am a new creation. The old has gone, all things have become new for me. I hope that is true because you were once, all of you, I know this for a certainty, some of you might still be in this state, but we were once all dead in trespasses and sins. But if you've been born again, you have new life, you have new desires, and you have a new objective to your life. What should the new objective to your life be? Holiness being useful to God, being conformed to the image of Christ, your head. And Christ has said that it is your duty, your calling to go about doing the good works that he set for you. Even these good works God planned out for us in eternity past. Now, before you were born again, before you were created in Jesus Christ for good works, you did not walk in good works. You did not do good works. Quite the opposite. You walked in trespasses and sins, as it says in verse 2, uh, or rather the verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, the thing is, you probably, at the time you were walking in them, you didn't think of them as trespasses and sins. After all, you were just doing what everybody else was doing as a general rule in the world, right? You were walking on the broad path like everybody else. But the idea of not doing the things that everyone did, that would have seemed odd to you. Not living like everybody else in the world, not holding the same worldview they did, not believing the same things they did. I, I, those of you who weren't born in a, in a covenant home uh, will remember, as I do, how weird evangelicals seemed. How odd they're, I mean, I, I just, I didn't understand them at all. The only time I bumped into evangelicals in New Jersey, where I was growing up, was we had one church in town. My parents kind of were like, oh, yeah, they're the crazies. It was a Baptist church, and it had one of those Jesus save signs, you know, with the cross. Uh, and it was, a, it was lit up. I remember it was green. And they were like, oh, yeah, we don't have anything to do with them. They're, they're weird. They're odd. The things they want are, are different and strange. So even back then, and I'm talking about in the 1970s, uh, we viewed that as a very odd thing. We didn't want to do those things. We didn't want to tell people about Jesus, go about being a holy roller. No, no, no. But when you changed, all of your perspective, or at least I hope all of your perspective changed. The things you loved changed. 
The person you loved changed. What you wanted to be changed. All of that changed forever. Whereas you formerly walked in sin, now you want to do good works. The old person you once were has died. He was crucified with Christ. And now you are a new creation. You're no longer under the sway of the devil doing his will. You no longer walk in lockstep with those who who love the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, the, the difference between you and who you once were, if you've been changed, is so radical that Paul can use it as an evidence for the fact that God has saved you. When you were spiritually dead, you walked in your trespasses and sins, and now that you've been made alive, you do good works. You live a different life. It's not the good works that saved you any more than, than good works make or rather, any more than the, you know, the fact that apple trees uh, give forth apples or produce apples in the fall, uh, any more that they were saved by that bearing of, of apples. It's just their nature. If they're a living apple tree, and when the fall comes along and if they've been pollinated, they'll, they'll bring forth apples. And in the same way, if you have been saved, you'll bring forth good works. It's your new nature. Your salvation is not dependent upon your good works, but your good works are a fruit and evidence of that lively faith that the Lord has given you. God doesn't do these good works for us, but what he does is he acts within you to give you that new disposition, that that desire to do them. And not a desire grudgingly, oh, I know I gotta do good works, oh, oh, okay, I'll do them. Good work. Are you happy? It's not the way Christians should be doing good works. The way, you know, some kids view chores. Oh, the dishes. Oh, I've got to go help people. That's not good works. We have a new inclination, a new disposition within us. And, and therefore, good works should give us pleasure. It should be our delight to do good works. Because of the one who set the good works for us, told us to do these things. You want to do them because you're God's workmanship and you want to please your maker by acting in accordance with his commands. And that, incidentally, is what good works are today. We have, and I make this point, I have to make this point, I don't want to stress it for too long, but, but good works are the good works that God says in his word are good works, not the good works of today. Not the Greta Thunberg good works or the, the gay agenda good works and all of those things that the world has brought in setting God's word on its head and calling evil good and good evil and so on. The only things that are truly good works are those things which God has delineated in his word as good. I'm sorry, Sheryl Crow, but sometimes it makes you happy and it is bad in any event. God is the one who defines good. It's not popular consensus. And it's certainly not the shifting opinions of unregenerate men. Prior to your being saved, I guarantee you, your scale of good was completely whack and shifted all over the place. But now you have a fixed definition of what's good in the same way that the compass arrow will always point north. So too your heart should always point towards good works. Our good works do not save us, but they are critical to our lives. I want to make uh, an application then. I want to give you an illustration. Many of you will be familiar, or at least I hope many of you, 
Well, I'll say some of you will be familiar with Monty Python's Flying Circus. Those of you, raise your hand if you're familiar with Monty Python's. Okay, good. All right, so we got, we got some. Um, in any event, it was the greatest British comedy troupe that has ever been formed. Um, possibly the greatest comedy troupe that has ever existed on the face of the planet. I don't know, but I'm going to go ahead and say possibly. Um, but the best known of their sketches was the parrot sketch. In the parrot sketch, a man, John Cleese, goes into the pet shop in which he had purchased a Norwegian blue parrot. Michael Palin is the pet shop owner, and he says, I wish to make a complaint. Michael Palin answers, oh yeah, what, what's your complaint? And he answers, I purchased this parrot from you, and it's dead. And the, uh, the pet shop owner keeps going on about how, no, 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 he's only resting. He's not dead. He's not really dead. <laughs> He only appears to be dead. He is, he is tired after an extended squawk. And he keeps making observations like, oh, look at, the, look at the beautiful plumage on the bird. Oh, isn't he grand? And, uh, you know, John Cleese answers correctly. The plumage don't enter into it. He's dead. What good is a parrot that's dead? Now, why do I bring this up? The sketch, you know, finally concludes when, when John Cleese takes the parrot out and says, all right, if he's dead, let's wake him up. Hello, Polly Parrot! He screams at the bird, then he even thumps it on the desk. And he says, now that is what I call a dead parrot. It's dead. Finally, the pet shop owner owns up and says, yes, it's, it's funny. Uh, or rather, it's dead. But it's funny because... It's silly trying to prove that a dead parrot is alive. The, the lengths that he goes to when it's obviously dead, there's no evidence of, of life. Pointing to the plumage doesn't matter. Why is this important? Well, uh, we often see the equivalent of the dead parrot sketch being played out in the lives of churchgoers. I hate to say that. A person professing to be a Christian, a born-again believer, when in fact there is no evidence whatsoever to support that claim. They are dead in sins and trespasses, but pretending to be alive. To claim to be a living Christian, there needs to be evidence in your life of that claim's truth. And by that, we need to see new dispositions, new habits, new pleasures, new good works. To claim that somebody is alive in Christ when they have no evidences of good works is equally silly. To point to outward uh, plumage, we might call it, and say, this is the evidence that I'm a Christian. Uh, I, I have church membership. I was baptized. I was born within a Christian family. I have Christian parents and so on. I'm here, aren't I? Huh? All of those things, though, are not fruits and evidences of a lively faith. You can still be the Christian dead parrot and be here, dead as a doornail. As a matter of fact, sometimes I'm not sure you're actually asleep. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, have, have they actually died? <laughs> J.C. Ryle puts it this way in his wonderful book, Holiness, when he talks about the need for good works. We must be holy because this is the only sound evidence that we have a saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James warns us there is such a thing as a dead faith. A faith which goes no further than the profession of the lips and has no influence on a man's character. True saving faith is a very different kind of thing. True faith will always show itself by its fruits. It will sanctify. It will work by love. It will overcome the world. It will purify the heart. I know that people are fond of talking about deathbed evidences. 
They will rest on words spoken in the hours of fear and pain and weakness as if they might take comfort in them about the friends they lose. But I'm afraid in 99 cases out of 100 such evidences are not to be depended upon. I suspect that with rare exceptions, men die just as they have lived. The only safe evidence that we are one with Christ and Christ in us is holy life. They that live unto the Lord are generally the only people who die in the Lord. If we would die the death of the righteous, let us not rest in slothful desires only. Let us seek to live his life. If a true, it is a, a true saying of trails, that man's state is not, and his faith unsound, that finds not his hopes of glory, purifying to his heart and life. So let me ask you a question. And one of the reasons why this is tremendously important is that often we will be satisfied with the plumage of our children or our relatives or our friends. And we'll say that's enough. They appear to be a Christian externally. They have some of the, the, the plumes. They have the baptism. They attend church. That's enough for me when we know that they're not evidencing any good works in their life when there doesn't seem to be any fruit appearing in their lives, or not even things that they could point to. Why is that a bad thing? Because we are allowing them to continue on in that state of death without bringing the gospel home to them. And we must not do that, brothers and sisters, any more than we would have somebody who is clearly dying of leprosy in our household and us pretend, no, no, he's fine. We'll put a little makeup on. Yeah, okay, that blotch over there. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to sweep this finger away that fell off. You know, that kind of thing. We won't do that kind of thing if we love the Lord. And if we love that person, we will speak the truth to them. The second thing is, look to your own heart and judge yourself. What are your pleasures? What are your desires? What are your inclinations? Are they the same as the world? Do you love the things the world loves? Do you love their games? Do you love their, their entertainment? Do you love their jokes? Do you love their company? Do you feel weird and awkward in church when they're talking about holy stuff, when the gospel is being preached to you, when it's hitting you? Is it a, this is alien stuff. I wish it was over. You're making me feel uncomfortable. Why are you shouting? Just get to the part where you say, let us pray, and we can go back to doing the stuff we like. Because this is an inconvenience. If that's the case, I have to tell you, this is a minor inconvenience compared to heaven, where worship is all day, every day, and we delight in it. If you don't like this, then heaven isn't going to have much appeal to you. It's not golf and Xbox. Brothers and sisters, it's the worship of the Lamb. You know that if you've been saved. The gospel never offends the saved. But the gospel deeply offends the unsaved. And if your heart rejects the gospel, it's because it's dead. And I need to tell you that. Because someday, Jesus is going to ask me, what did I tell the people who I spoke to Sunday by Sunday? Did I allow them to remain in their dead state? Or did I tell them the truth? And so I have told you the truth. What will you do with it is the question. Jesus died for your sins. If you have believed upon him, you have that absolute assurance. But if you have not yet believed upon him, you have no assurance at all. 
I don't care if you're in this room. I don't care if you're a member of a Christian family. I don't even care if you were baptized. Those things will not save. What do you need? You need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you need that wonderful progressive process of sanctification that changes you forever. And I pray, Lord, that that you will open the eyes of those who have heard me and who have not yet come to that point. You can do that, I know. Let's go before the Lord whom we love. God, our Father, I do pray that you would help. You would do that work, not help. That you would, you would change hearts as only you can. It is inevitable that there are some listening to me today, either here or online or both, who have not yet closed with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to be willing to believe. Let them now, at the beginning of the year, look at their lives afresh and truly. And if their pleasures are all to be found in the things of the world, let them know that they are the Christian equivalent of a dead parent and that they need desperately to have life and that Christ alone can bestow that upon that. So I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to pray, that they would call out to Christ and say, life, life, give me life, and that they would run to him. Oh, Lord, may you do that saving work as only you can. We pray this.